You, you know, you were a very strange human being. You're aware of this. And, right? and I nailed my pen. And you nailed your pen. Yes. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Gregorian Rant. Uh, I am Father Brian Lurkin. You jumped in before I could say, and we're off. About time. I, dang it. About time. We might have to just start from the top. And I am Patrick Devenny. Back for round two of There's Something About Mary. There's Something About Mary. I love that title. That is a great title. Ryan came up with that. I would, I would love to take credit. Normally, I always send the titles, but I came up with something that was just no one enjoyed. And Ryan came out of the left field with There's Something About Mary. He's kind of an evil genius. He is. Yeah. He is. It's, it's the truth. It's the truth. Getting married soon. Coming live from my office today. Live from uh, the studios in Denver, Colorado. Of young Sir Patrick Devenny's of office. Patrick Devenny's office. Oh, I was hoping nice you'd say young Sir. That'd be cool. Young Sir. You also have got the um, Everything Will Kill You, So Choose Something Fun poster going on. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of what you expect to see in every Catholic office. Totally. I don't think there's an ounce of anything you would expect to see. Some viewers, if they cut to your view, has Morgan's drawing of the Godfather and a sitting on a panda bear with the quote that says the Lord of the Rings is obviously the best movie trilogy. Cause she knows I'm a Godfather fan. And every day I come in, there's a new drawing and you're a panda fan. And I love panda bears. Who doesn't? That's right. Who doesn't love panda bears? That Unless is. you don't have a soul. That's right. They are. If, if you ever having a down day, some people do like affirmations and read or go to adoration or something like that i would be an advocate of just turning on youtube and typing in funny panda clips and it will instantly brighten your day the companions joke about this so here's a shout out to father jason wunch but oh father jason wunch and father nathan gobel there's this old joke in the companions that the rest of us are working hard and those guys are just watching cat videos nice <laughs> and i remember like they would talk about that they'd be like back in the day they'd be like Man, I saw this ridiculous cat video on YouTube, and I just thought, you guys are such losers. It's, it really is sad. I just, I love them both, but Father Jason, shout out to Father Jason, and every time I just, anytime you think of Father Jason, I just picture him with his, the goatee, doing yeah, the... He the, strokes his goatee. He does. Yeah. And he's yeah. just pondering life and the yeah. conversation. He's a deep thinker. He also is, like, on the bike constantly. Yeah. Constantly. I, yeah, yes. Do you have that on your Zwift app where it tells you the people you follow when they're Zwifting, when they start Zwifting? I don't have, I don't get notified. I'll see if I like log in, it will show me who's done what, but I feel like he gets notified because he always likes, like he'll send a thumbs up to me right <laughs> on the app. I'm like, man, he noticed right away. He doesn't do that for me, but I, but I get, the, I need to turn my notifications off, but he's, I, that must be on for Zwift for me. Oh, that's funny. Because it always says Jason Wunsch started Zwifting. Yeah. Which is, and that happens about, you know, every couple hours. For roughly. a couple hours. For too. a couple hours. <laughs> it's the truth. It's going to be interesting. So uh, the two new priests coming with us are both bikers. Yeah. And they're both way better than me. Father Sean Conroy is a machine. He is. And congratulations. So we're recording this right after our new priests were ordained. So the Archdiocese of Denver ordained six men on Saturday. Uh, two men are, are members of the Companions of Christ. So newly minted Father Sean Conroy and Father um, Father Peter. Um, gosh, this is bad. Why am I spacing on his name right now? Father Peter. I don't know why I'm having total brain freeze. 
I live with the guy. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's um, the pressures of the light. I guess it is. I haven't met him. I, so I can't help you here. I, I do not know. I anyway, only know six, so six, six men ordained on uh, Saturday. Um, great guys. Super excited to see him in the priesthood. Uh, and they're off. And they're off. Yeah. Now they're, they're off. fed right to the wolves. One quick story. Can, you can Father Sean now hear, I mean, he can fully hear confessions. Yeah. There's always the annoying guy. This is like a Catholic thing. So when you get ordained a priest, there's like the one guy who is dying to be your first confession. Yeah. So you're like walking out of the cathedral and someone runs up to you. Hey, come here. Hear my confession. You That's know? right. And it's a little violent. I remember somebody did that to me and I was thinking, what in the Sam? Yeah. What is going That's- on? But now I feel bad. I think last time I was with Father, now Father Sean, I joked with him. I was like, oh, I'd be so rad. I want to be your first one. But I kind of want to go in there and like bring the heat on the first one. Yeah. I need to like really mess up and and really see how he, not for me, but I I really want to mess up and have all these sins just so I could allow him to coach me through it. Yeah, that's a bad idea. Okay. Um, any shout outs? <laughs> yeah, so so kind of a cool story. This is this is actually really cool. So something that a lot of people don't get to see in their lifetime. Uh, so I went to Father Sean Conroy's, and it's going to be hard on this podcast talking about him because it sounds like Father Sean Connery. It's not Sean Connery. Oh, Sean nice. Conroy. That's funny. Yeah, we call him Sean Con in the Companions. Yeah, but you can call him Father Sean Con. But I went to his first mass, and this is something so cool. If you haven't been to a first mass for a priest ever. So you get ordained, and then the tradition in a lot of places, certainly in Denver, is then the next day you have your first Mass on a Sunday. And what you do is you don't preach that Mass. You invite another priest to preach for you because you're nervous as all get out, and you just want to get through the Mass without major screw-ups. So you invite someone. Father Sean had Father John Nepple preach. Uh, Father John always does a great job. Super smart guy. So we were at St. Francis Cabrini, and that's where I had my first Mass. 10 years ago, which is crazy. So nuts. So did Father John. And so we're at St. Francis Cabrini, but the really cool thing is there's this tradition. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but what happens to the day you're ordained, the bishop takes sacred chrism, which is a holy oil, and he consecrates your hands. So you go and you you kneel before him and he puts this holy, holy oil all over your hands. Wow. And then you take a little cloth. There's like a technical name for it, but I forget the name. But there's this little cloth you take and you go and wipe them off and you save that cloth. And this is maybe the most emotional thing I've ever seen in my entire life and had to do in my life. Wow, I'm getting chills. You're going to love this. This is yeah. so powerful. So what happens is you want to honor your family when you're ordained a priest. And so at my first mass, what I did, my first mass as a priest, I, had, I bought a crucifix and I put that crucifix on the altar and then there's that that cloth that my hands were that I wiped off the holy oil from, and it yeah. smells beautiful. It's the balsam and the chrism is it's just really fragrant and beautiful. But what you do is you present those to your parents at your first mass at the end. Whoa! And the tradition of the church, it's super emotional, is that when you bury your parents, you bury them with those gifts. And what's what it's meant to signify, and especially with the mother, is kind of the stronger tradition. This is a good segue into something about Mary part two. Yeah, yeah. But what you do is you, when your mother dies, you wrap her hands in that cloth. 
I'm going to cry just like Whoa, thinking shoot. about this. Shout out to Teresa Larkin. Yeah. She, my, my mom, I mean, that, that might be her most prized possession now is that cloth. But what that, the idea how is. How have I never heard of this? This is awesome. Yeah. Well, you, not too many people see first masses. You know, yeah. How many priests, you know, do you get to see their first mass? What happens is, so when the idea is it's a symbol of that your mother goes before God and that cloth is a symbol of, I gave my son to you as a priest. Whoa. Yeah, it's intense. And like, I remember at my first mass, everyone, when I, when I talked about that and I got all choked up, you know me. Yeah. Not a dry eye in the house at Cabrini. There, everyone was just bawling like a baby. And, but it was so beautiful. And so, and I love that tradition. And there's, there's something special about when a, um, a priest and his mother, there's something special there, uh, which is a good transition into <laughs> something about Mary part two. Wow. Or we could also just end there. Uh, end a podcast. All right, guys, have a good weekend. Uh, <laughs> so can I, let's just lighten this up a little bit. Can I grab the washcloth upstairs? wrap it around my hands and say, I worked for your son right. and get like extra. <laughs> I don't think so. You can, like a few things. you can try. I'm just saying, is there yeah. a chance that I could, that'd be cool. That would be cool. That'd be cool. <laughs> there's a, um, there's something about a woman's heart though. And that's, I think it's a good, it's a good transition here is that I oftentimes think, you know, in the modern world, the, the modern world doesn't like femininity. Yeah. It, it doesn't know how to deal with femininity. Right. Um, but the world desperately needs the feminine desperately. Um, I'm trying to find this passage. I don't know if I can be able to find it. Um, but the world, the world doesn't have space for what's feminine. I feel like the world today is just so hard. Yeah. There, there's so much hardness and everybody's got to be efficient and going all the time. You've got to be tough. And there's nothing wrong with those things necessarily. But there's something about the feminine that is receptive, that is um, compassionate, yeah. that has just kind of a, a feminine heart that is so desperately needed in the world today. Um, so, so we're talking about Jesus and Mary. And one of the, if I could find this, I don't know why I can't think of where this passage is right now. But the, I wanted to bring up the widow of Nain, N-A-I-N. Um, Father Mike would kill me right now for not knowing where this is at off the top of my head. But anyway, the widow of Nain, this is kind of a cool uh, passage. What happens is Jesus and his disciples are walking and there's a widow who uh, is walking through the streets and her son is dead. And the gospels tell us that it's her only son. And she, and it says she was a widow. And it just seems kind of like this random passage. And then Jesus ends up raising this child to life and giving the child to the mother. And for years, I was like, okay, that's just kind of a cool story. You know, I'm like, I guess if Jesus raises someone from the dead, you got to put it in the Bible. And it's like, that was, that was kind of a cool moment, you know? <laughs> that made the headlines. But honestly, I think that passage is about Mary. Because I think it said this widow. So in the, in the Gospels, Joseph only appears in the very beginnings. and by the time Jesus reaches his public ministry, it appears that Joseph is nowhere to be found. Okay. Which is given rise to kind of the, the understanding that Joseph must have died 
before Jesus began his public ministry. And that Joseph, I mean, is it pretty well known or is that also just kind of inferred with that Joseph was much older than Mary? It's a, we don't know that for sure. There's different traditions around that. Okay. There, there are books outside the Bible that say things about that, but we don't necessarily ascribe to them. Got it. Okay. Uh, they're, they're interesting to think about, but we don't, we don't know for sure. But it seems certainly, it, it certainly looks like Mary is a widow. And one of the best ways is to know this, and I want to talk about this passage today, is in John chapter 19. We touched on it last time a little bit. From the cross, Jesus gives his mother to John the apostle. Right. And there's no, there's no reason for Jesus to do that if Joseph's in the picture. There's no reason. So John takes care of Mary after Jesus's death. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Do you see that? You see what I'm saying there? Yes. If Joseph was still alive, Joseph Mary doesn't would take need, care of, exactly. Yeah. Joseph would be there to take care of Mary. Um, but anyway, so the widow of Nain, what happens is Jesus raises this child, gives it back to his, gives the child back to his mother. Um, and what the church fathers see here, and what I didn't know for a long time, but it just hit me at one point, was the, um, the, this is an image of Mary after the resurrection. Mary's a widow. So the widow of Nain is a widow. She's an only son. Jesus is Mary's only child. We'll talk about that today. Yeah. If you're coming from a Protestant background, you're used to thinking that Jesus has brothers and sisters. We'll get to that. Uh, why Catholics don't think that. But Jesus is an only child. His mother's a widow. And the widow of Nain, her only son dies. Jesus is an only son of a widow, and he's going to die. And Jesus' heart is moved with pity for this widow who loses the only thing she has, which is her son. And so he raises him. And this is again, of course, pointing forward to Jesus's own resurrection. And he gives the son back to his mother. Super powerful. And when I read that passage, you just can't help but think of just the heart of Mary and Jesus and how, how close they are, how much they love each other. I think uh, two things there for me is one, again, it just points to being a rookie trying to learn scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of joked in the beginning, but when you read that, you're like, wow. I mean, that, that makes the covers it. of the, you know, the newspaper, like uh, Jesus performed this act, but there's a much bigger understanding. You have to understand the context and the meanings and where this yeah. is kind of going. And it takes, takes a while to get to, I'm for sure. Okay. That just blew my mind. But it also like, when you start to think about this widow, obviously this widow lost her husband yep. and then lost her son. And there's, I could see like, even for myself of being like, well, I want, why doesn't Jesus come resurrect my mom or kid or any of that kind of stuff? And I started to think, well, then that also, um, you know, Mary loses Joseph and she could be really mad at God in that moment right. about losing Joe. And we, again, we don't know that, how that all plays out, but from the very simple fact of I am Catholic and Christian because of, and I always point back to like my Romans eight twenty eight, right? but understanding like that is brutal in the moment. But then that also led to Jesus on the cross could say that. Yep. And then now it opens up this whole thing of anyone that follows the kingdom of heaven is now a child of God. Like there's a, there's a whole, there's a much bigger thing playing out yep. in life. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It. Yeah. You don't know Jesus going to the cross that he's going to make Mary the mother of all Christians. Correct. Which is, and we'll get to that today. Hopefully it's totally. dangerous for me to threaten to, to like promise. Something about things. Mary part three. Part three. <laughs> coming at you live. This one's actually tough too, because traditionally when we've done any sort, well, I guess we've never done a part two. But we've done them where they've been back to back, like on the same day. Where we recorded the same but day. Yeah. It probably would have been ideal had we have time last time to go like, oh, we'll do a part two and then flowed right into it. Like, right. oh, let's take a five minute break and then do I'm, it. I'm pretty happy. I think we're doing pretty good. Same. Yeah. I think we're we're there. I was a little I was a little nervous though. Yeah, you, you're pretty awesome. You're you're kind of a big deal. Well, I was nervous how to carry you. Yeah, it's you true. You know what I mean? You so, gotta carry the team a lot of times. Yeah. Luckily we actually prepared for this one. So really yeah. quickly though, so let me read this passage. I found it. It's yeah. Luke seven. I knew it was in Luke's gospel, but I forgot what chapter it was in. So Luke 7 says, uh, soon afterwards, this is verse 11, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the city, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. And I just imagine Jesus wanting to say that to Mary. Yeah. Do not weep. Um, and he came and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And he gave him to his mother. Uh, you know, and it goes on. Everybody's amazed. But that, that passage, Jesus's heart is moved with compassion. And it's because this is going to foreshadow his own death and his mother has lost everything. Um, and, and I think this gets to, again, to the heart. I want to hit some of the like common questions people have about Mary, but maybe a good place to start today is that last time we talked a little bit about this, Mary is the archetype of the church, the, the perfect exemplary model of the church. And Mary teaches us what it means to be a Christian. And what Mary teaches us is that Jesus is her everything. Yeah. Okay. Jesus is Mary's everything. Um, Balthazar, of course, has a lot of great things to say about this. Uh, I brought in a little one of Balthazar's books. Which one is that? This is called The Christian State of Life. Oh, yeah, that's one of the first it's, ones I read. Yeah. Isn't that, was that second or third that you read? Yeah. <laughs> right oh. after Clifford, I dove into that one. Yeah. So, so Balthazar says this. He says, he's talking about Mary's yes. It marries yes to God. And all of us know this, that, you know, I can say yes to God and my yes goes a certain distance. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, God, I'll obey you. Yes, I love you. But when the road gets really tough, there's, there's a place where, where I can break. Yeah. And I can say, you know, if tomorrow, if everyone alerts tomorrow, I was like, okay, FB, we thought you were kind of cool, but turns out we were wrong. Yeah. And we're all leaving to go to a better church and um, good luck. Right. That'd be tough, you know, and I, I don't know where my breaking point is, but Balthazar loves to talk about how Mary's yes was a yes that went all the way to the cross. It was a yes that surrendered everything. It was not as a shallow yes. It was, here's everything I am. I surrender to you. So he says, uh, such an unqualified yes can be spoken only out of the utmost purity of soul. If you want to say yes to someone, you might have the good intention to do it, but, to, but the deeper your yes goes, the more pure your soul has to be. Uh, such an unqualified yes can be spoken only out of the utmost purity of soul. Hence, the immaculate conception 
was the ultimate prerequisite for the incarnation. And I love that line. Uh, so basically what we're saying here, and what Balthazar is saying in that passage, is that the Immaculate Conception wasn't just like, okay, God can't dwell with sin, which is true. That's all over the Bible, by the way. Um, if you want to understand the Immaculate Conception, God can't dwell with sin. This is why Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden in Genesis 3, because they've sinned and that's God's dwelling place. They can't be there anymore. This is why the Jews have to purify themselves in uh, Exodus 19 when they arrive at Mount Sinai. It's why Isaiah has to be purified in Isaiah 6 before he can be in God's presence. It's why at Mass, you and I, and all of us, we begin Mass by confessing our sins and asking for God's mercy as we kind of come into his presence. So Mary has God dwelling in her very body. Jesus comes and dwells inside of her. And this is what it means to be a Christian, is for Christ to live inside of us. Christianity is not merely I believe something's true. Christianity is not merely I follow a certain moral code. Christianity is God living in us. And, then, and so Mary becomes this great image of that. Okay, a few things. Yes. One, you just mentioned... God kicks out Adam and Eve because they've sinned. They, they, from the tree mm -hmm. and I get that, but why was the snake allowed to be there? Why is the devil allowed to be in the garden of Eden? That's like the hardest question in like all of theology. Gosh, I'm good. I know you are good. I am good. Um, why is the snake allowed to be in the garden? How do we get to the, the garden? Cause you said Genesis and Adam and Eve were kicked out. Oh, of the, they kicked uh, out in Genesis three. Yeah. Yeah. So they were kicked out because they sinned, but sin was in the garden to tempt them. So the, the it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, but so there, there's a tie here to revelation 12. So in revelation 12 is where St. Michael, the archangel does battle with Satan. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that the, the angels, Satan fell before Adam and Eve did. Okay. So really the right. first fall is not of Adam and Eve. It's of Satan and his angels. Got it. So angel. And if you read revelation 12, it's apocalyptic. And so it's revelation 12 is not meant to be like a precise uh, play by play of everything. Yeah. But what, what, what is clear in revelation 12 is that there's war in heaven and Michael casts Satan out of heaven, but then he comes to the earth. Got it. And yeah, there, there's a lot there, but so, so that's why Satan's there. And also like, um, we might get to this today. I pray not, but there's a certain sense in which Adam prefigures Christ. Got it. And St. Paul, again, we'll talk about this. Two of my favorite chapters. I reference them all the time are Romans chapter five and first Corinthians 15. And in both of those chapters, Paul is going to compare Jesus and Adam and how they're similar but of course, very different as well. Got it. Okay. Um, and then, so, okay, the Immaculate Conception, I think something gets brought up a lot too. God can't dwell. How did you say this? God can't dwell with sin or in sin? With sin. So then that begs a question that I know you get a lot, but Mary was sinless all the way up until that point though too. Yes. She had to be in yeah. order for it you know, her first, like, I guess, conscious act yep. was accepting Jesus. Yep. But well, that's, I mean, that's the first thing we know in the scripture. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Mm. Okay. But 
how do we kind of know that she was sinless? I, I, I guess. So that's what we were getting at last time when we talked yeah. about the, the Kakari Tomine, where it says full of grace. That's right. And I remember something that happened in the past. Uh, but and the thing is, it, as Catholics, the early church all believed this. Yeah. And this is, the, this is one of the crazy things if you're coming from a Protestant world. And like, like one I want to talk about is virgin, Mary's perpetual virginity is very tied to this. The fact that she remained a virgin even after giving birth to Jesus. Yes. And for Protestants, it sounds crazy because t- this New Testament talks about the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here's one of the things you need to wrestle with is that the early Christians love scripture. At least the bishops that we have and the priests that we have writings from, they love scripture. And in fact, it was common in the ancient world for people to memorize the New Testament. And they, their first language was Greek. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them. And so they, my point is, they knew the Bible way better than you and I do. Way better. Uh, and there are the, some of you out there who know the Bible better than I do. But the fathers knew the Bible very, very well. And they know, like, so I should pull out Matthew 1, uh, or Matthew 2. Uh, actually, I think it's in Luke. See, proof that you know scripture better than me. But at the beginning of the Gospels, there's a line that, that Protestants frequently quote to Catholics. Here we go. So it's in Matthew chapter 1. So it says, uh, when Joseph one twenty four, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not. And to know someone in the Bible is a, is a way of, of speaking about sex. Got it. So, so he knew her not, meaning he did not have sexual relations with her until she had born a son. And he called his name Jesus. So Protestants say, see what it says there, FB? He didn't know her until. Until, which therefore once Jesus, then they right. had sex. Yeah, exactly. And so, so they're like, see, Catholics, you talk about Mary being perpetually a virgin. Matthew one twenty four, right there, right? Um, seems to contradict you. And then there's plenty of places in the Bible that say, the, that talk about the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And so my pushback to the Protestants would be this. The first, let's say in that context, so the early Christians who knew scripture better than us, who spoke Greek as their first language, universally believed that Mary was perpetually a virgin. So this, this passage and the passages speaking about Jesus's brothers and sisters did not catch them off guard. They knew these passages. So how, so how did they put this together? How could they say Mary's a virgin right. with these? So two quick things. So this passage, when it says until the end, and, and I really challenge you to read this passage carefully and really think about what is Matthew saying here at the end of chapter one? Matthew is not trying to tell us anything actually about what happens after. He's emphasizing that Joseph is not Jesus's father. Got it. That's the only emphasis. And we use this kind of language sometimes. So sometimes until does imply that it changes after. Yeah. I'm going to be in the office until three, which implies that I won't be. Then I'm leaving after, after three. Yeah. But there's other ways we use until where it doesn't necessarily mean anything about after. So for instance, Jesus will be king until the end of days. So will he not be king after the last day? Right. No, he will be. Um, 
And Matthew here is that it's very similar language. Matthew is not emphasizing something after. Okay. So that's the first point. But the more important point is, and there's two last things on perpetual virginity. Um, the first point is this, is that, do you remember, do you know the, Oh boy, here we go. Uh, there's a word for in Greek. This one, you know, why that's where you set me up. So, so think of Philadelphia. Philos. Yes, that's that's a word. That, that's a word for love. Yeah. Yep. Dang it! I thought that's where you're going. Philia. Yep. What's the second part of that? Delphia. Delphia. <laughs> Delphi. Oracle of Delphi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. I am such a jerk. So the in the word for a brother or sister, uh, brothers Adelphos in Greek in the New Testament, and a sister is just Adelphi. Got it. The pro here's the thing. City so of brotherly love or whatever. Exactly. It is. So yeah. Philadelphia is Philos means a love of friends or family and Adelphos is brother. Yeah. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Then the word in the new Testament that means brother or sister is used in the new Testament itself and all over the place in the ancient world as any close relation. Got it. So Adelphos, the most strict translation of that does mean brother or sister. It does mean that. But, it, but it's a broader word than that. And it can mean this. And here's where we get to the final point, which I think this is, and this is a cool thing to talk about. Who cares? Right. Like, why does it matter? So why do you, I can throw that on you because I always talk too much on these things. Why does the church, why do you think the church cares? Why does it matter if Mary had other kids or not? Why well, do it throws out that? Example that we reference in Luke. Right, the widow of Nain in Luke 7. Yeah. Um, well, I think it, I mean, hold on, wait, go back. Why does the church care that, which aspect? That Mary is a virgin. Why does it matter? Like if, so if it matters for Jesus's birth, obviously, because right. at Jesus's birth, the point, and this is what Protestants would say, the, the point of the virgin birth for them is Joseph is not Jesus's father. And that's, and that is massively important. That's emphasized in the new Testament very clearly. But what about afterwards? Does it really matter if Mary and Joseph then had a normal married life? I guess it's a great question. I don't know why the church, I guess more of one, like, why would she not like, why did it not happen? Yeah, exactly. Which is, I mean, the same question, just phrased a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I punt that back to you. Oh. I don't know. It is a good question for me. Back to you, caller one. That's right. Yeah, so the, the reason for and this is profound, and I would really challenge you, if you're coming from a Protestant background, uh, this is, Protestants have a, a hole in their Bible in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. They have a hole in their Bible. And you've, you've read these passages, I'm sure you have if you're out there and you're from that tradition. But somehow, I, when, when I talk to Protestants about this, th what they usually say is to say, oh my gosh, I've read that passage a hundred times. How have I, how did I not see this? Here's why the church cares. So 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul says virginity is about is an undivided heart. Mm -hmm. Virginity is the outward manifestation that your heart is fully and completely given over to one thing. And that thing is God. So the church cares because Mary is the perfect image of what a Christian needs to be the perfect image. And so her virginity and the church fathers love to talk about this. I'm reading St. Gregory of Nyssa right now in his treatise on virginity. And he was married 
And then uh, I don't know if his wife died. I'm not sure about the history there. But he went and moved to a life of celibacy. And he writes this long treatise on why virginity is a higher calling. And what St. Paul says about it is, and again, you have to wait, this is a fine line here, talking to a married man. Yeah, well, I mean, Chester, I'm about to, I'm about to. <laughs> You're going to light me up. I'm about to poke that one. But isn't that also playing to the priesthood? Mm-hmm. And that's a big justification of why priests are not allowed to be married. Yeah, you, I mean, one of the, th- one of the things that pe- Protestants, and again, I don't mean to pick on you, brothers and sisters, I love you. But you don't get you don't get virginity or celibacy. I and think right there's a good example. I not I just have to point this out. I was saying because you you say that a lot. But if if someone was reading our conversation right now, mm-hmm. you're not talking to Sean when you say brothers and sisters. Like that's an example oh, of yeah, the, like my brother, how you exactly. use the word. Sure, brother yeah. means that. But when you hear brother and sister, it's a way of just saying like right. The New someone Testament. that's closer than just a person walking on the street. Yeah, of course, the New Testament will broaden those, that word, Adolphos, yeah. to mean a fellow Christian. Right. So, yeah, exactly. That is a good example. The, um, but Protestants tend not to understand virginity. And one of the things you've got to wrestle with, and this is one of the themes I, I would like to get to today, Jesus is the new Adam. That's very clear in Scripture. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. Other places as well, Jesus is very clearly the new founder of the human race. In Matthew 19, Jesus also says that there is no marriage in heaven. Why? Why isn't there marriage in heaven? And, and you've got to wrestle with that. You've got to wrestle with that. And, and in, in a lot of Christian circles, there's no appreciation of virginity and celibacy. Catholicism understands these things. And there is a reason why the new Adam, Jesus, and the new Eve, who is Mary, that both of them are virgins. There's a reason for that. Do we want to go with that or what do you want to do? I think we do. Well, cause now I, I feel like we should, um, I feel like we should, my, my shout, one of my shout outs for today is Steve Van Deest. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. I love that guy. Um, he's been a big mentor to me, but he brought up a point today and I, I think I would be doing a disservice to not, kind of touch on this aspect sure. of if you're looking at Jesus and Mary as uh-huh. virgins yes. and they're both the examples. Yep. I would say it got brought up at breakfast today, but it was more like um, Christianity, but especially Catholics, do they demonize a sexual act then? Right. Like, is there, and he had this thing about like, um, it was in the eighties or 80 years ago, something that like, I don't know. I wish he was here to kind of explain this part. But when you look at those who, if that's your example, then how do we get to the point that the sexual act is good? Right. How do you bridge that then? These are because otherwise it seems like it's kind yep. of demonized. Yeah, these are deep topics. But the um, so the, some of the church fathers do demonize sex, and uh, the modern response to this is Saint John Paul II's teaching on the theology of the body. And so if, if you want a Catholic understanding that's more positive on sexuality, and many of you out there love John Paul II's teachings on theology of the body, I have honestly, and if I'm just fully honest, I have a mixed feeling about theology of the body. Uh, there is something beautiful about the gift of self, but I think, I think today, like, when I encounter devout Catholics, there's kind of, it seems to me like there's a naivety around sexuality and there's a way of talking about it 
of this just this is so holy and it's amazing and it imitates the Trinity. And I don't disagree. I, I think there's an aspect to that. But the, the church fathers tend to say there's also that sexuality bears a certain mark of the fall. Mm. And I just and it, a lot of good Catholics and smarter Catholics in me would disagree with me on this. But I, I am where I am. This is how I think of it. And the, the church fathers, many of them went too far on this. And they, can, they, could, they could end up in a place where they denied that the body was good. And that's not okay. And the church condemns that view. Right. But the church fathers tend to say that what happens in sexuality is even in the best of relationships, even the best of them, there's lust tends to be something that creeps in. Yeah. Even in the most loving marriages. Lust tends to creep in, and also there tends to be a mark of domination or manipulation. And interestingly, I'm not a married man. We're not going to talk about you and stuff on the <laughs> podcast on this. But interestingly, I hear a lot of people say, and the fathers would see this this way, that sexuality becomes a way for that women have power over men, and there can be power plays. And so the fathers tend to see Adam and Eve before the fall. And this is not a topic I want to get on because it's dangerous and it's super deep and I'd love to do it sometime. But the fathers tend to see that they think that before the fall, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship in the garden. It was untainted by these things. Steph has never had control over me. That's good to know. <laughs> let's, let's leave it there. There's no, kids in the car. No. Yeah. yeah, right. There's kids uh, in the car. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel like that should be a whole nother segment to do that one justice. Um, it's a really big topic. So, it's a complex topic. So then I guess as a consequence, like we look at Jesus and Mary and Mary's perpetual virginity mm-hmm. as a, as an example. Yep. But then as a consequence of the fall, there is a reality of the sexual act. I mean, obviously now after the fall, you can't procreate mm-hmm. other than this one time with Jesus without the sexual act. So there is, there is an aspect of that. Yeah. And honestly, I just don't want to go down that road. Right yeah, now. I know. So That's where I'm like, I'm trying pass. to, cause I could, cause I could answer that, but I think it's a road we don't want to go down right now. I love that. Uh, okay. So let's take this road back. To Mary. Yes. And so the church believes virgin before and after. Yep. And, um, and again, you've got to remember virginity is about the, the, the external physical virginity, right? And you, you could fall into a Gnostic thing here and say, well, it's just your body. All that matters is your soul. That's what ancient pagans believed. Ancient pagans taught that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. All that matters is your soul. The Christian revolution, one of them, was that your body matters. Your body actually matters. And Mary, and none of us are perfect, but Mary, her physical virginity is united to her spiritual virginity, which is the way the church says, Jesus is her everything. Yeah, yeah. Everything. And again, if you, if you don't, well, if this is hard for you, really challenge you to go read 1 Corinthians 7. And go, go hear what St. Paul says about this, because that's exactly what he says. He says, if, if, if you live a life of virginity, you will have an undivided heart. Which I feel, I mean, you made a comment earlier, too, of like the yes that she made. Yeah. And like that breaking point. 
everything that she endures and goes through. Um, and I'm just like thinking of every example of like, I sure you can have a yes, but a lot of times like I'll have a yes, but it's also like under my breath, I'm like cussing up a storm and I'm right. mad about it. Right. And I'm like, why am I here? This yeah, and too. that. And for her to, to do what she did, man, that's inspiring. Yeah. And I think, I think this leads to a second point here. And that this is when I think that that really, um, I think it helped a lot of people understand why Mary matters so much. So what the new Testament does, and we, we've talked about this on the podcast, Jesus doesn't come just to save us out of the world. Jesus comes to rescue God's good creation. And so when the new Testament says that Jesus is the new Adam, again, explicitly in Romans five and first Corinthians 15, but the entire gospel of John has this motif running through it. And I want to talk about this briefly because in John's gospel, so John's gospel begins and it wants us to think of Genesis. I just closed my Bible. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> so I'm going to open it back up again. So in John chapter one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So in the beginning should make us think of Genesis, Genesis chapter one, right? First line of the Bible uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John chapter one is going to evoke Genesis. And so John one is going to have all these themes around light. Um, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing God creates in Genesis is let there be light. light. Yeah. And so there's this theme of light and darkness. What most people don't know is that John chapter one has seven days. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And here's why this, I love this stuff. Oh man, I'm going to be riled up today, but I love this. We, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to understand what is Jesus doing? What is God doing in his redemption of the world? What is the new Testament about? God is recreating the world in Christ. That's what he's doing. He's not just, you know, saving you by your act of faith that you believe Jesus rose from the dead. You know, Romans 10, nine, I know, you know, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I know that verse. There's so the, the Bible's a big book. There's a lot more going on than that. Yeah. So Genesis, so John chapter one counts days. And what happens is you get to day four. And, and I never knew this, this is why we need to read, not just the Bible by ourselves. The reason I know this is because I've read it with the tradition of the church and with others who have helped me to see this, but John starts counting days and you'll, you'll notice different sections of John one. It'll say the next day, the next day, the next day. And you get to day four, if you're counting you either day four, and then you get to chapter two, verse one and chapter two, one says on the third day. And this is confusing for people. Cause they're like, wait, do we go back to day three? That's from the, the third day from the fourth. Oh, the seventh. So it's the seventh day. And you know what John chapter two is? I know I, I, you're going to hate me for asking these questions. Oh man. I want to guess, but I don't know. Take a guess. Don't be afraid. Be that, not afraid. Is baptism? No. Dang it. <laughs> John chapter two is the wedding feast at Cana. Ah. Now think about this. In the original creation story, the very, the last day, the last thing that happens is the creation of Eve. And so in Genesis, you have a, you have a story where things go together, right? The, and if we had more time, right? The, 
the first three days line up with the second three days, right? Day one, God creates light and darkness. Day four, which is the first set in the first day in the second set of days. Day four, God creates the sun and the moon, which go together with the light and the darkness. Right? Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. Day five corresponds to day two. Day five, God creates the birds and the fish that go with the sky and the sea. Day three, God creates dry land. And day six, he creates mankind. And the very last thing God creates in the creation story is Eve. And so Genesis builds its way. So all these things go together. And the final thing that goes together are man and woman. And so here we are in John 1. Jesus Christ is recreating the world. And the last thing to be created in the Genesis account is Eve. Um, and so, so here we go. So on the third day, there was a marriage at Canaan Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Uh, Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, ti emoi kaisoi gune. It's one of my favorite lines. Nice. Uh, a woman, what have you to do with me? It really means what is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, here's the thing. What did Jesus call Mary? Woman. Now, if we're on the seventh day of the new creation. Woman. What does that remind you of? Eve. Eve. On the seventh day, there is a woman because she is taken out of man, right? And, and she's called woman. Jesus will call Mary woman at, woman at two key places in John's gospel. This is the first on the seventh day of the new creation at the beginning of the gospel. And John's gospel is a way of kind of having bookends around this, but there, there she is Mary and Jesus calls her woman. And I don't think that's a mistake at a wedding on the, the, the seventh day of the new creation, uh, a woman. So this is, this is an, evocative kind of phrase that evokes Eve. The other place is on the cross. And so on the cross, what day of the week was Jesus crucified? Uh, Friday. Friday. And so in the Jewish idea of the creation story, um, what day, the, what number day is Friday? Sixth. That's right. Sixth day. What day was, what day was Eve, Adam and Eve created on? Sixth. The sixth day. And so Jesus is on the cross and there's, there's all this uh, in John's gospel on the cross. There's all this kind of stuff about the new creation. By the way, I think this is my theory. Some people would disagree with this, but I think, I think this is what's going on. When Jesus says to the good thief, he says, today you will be with me where? In the kingdom. He says in paradise. Paradise. And, and what is a little tricky theologically because Today, I mean, Jesus still has to go to, to the place of the dead. Right, he has to right. rise from the, from the dead and he has to go to heaven on, you know, he has to rise on Sunday and then 40 days later, he's going to ascend to heaven. Yeah. So what does it mean when he says a good thief today, you will be with me in paradise. I think, and a lot of people think that Jesus is recreating the world and the cross is the new tree of life in the garden of Eden, right? Like. Jesus is in a garden with a decision where he says, and he cries out to the father, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to the, the tree of life. The new Testament understands the cross as the tree of life. The garden of Eden had the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. Yep. And the new Testament understands that Jesus is doing something to restore the garden of Eden. But if there's a new Eden, there's a new Adam. Doesn't it kind of beg the question, 
Well, is there a new Eve? And the early Christians, very, very early, St. Irenaeus talks about this in the second century. The early Christians say, yes, there is. And her name is Mary. Uh, wow. And so this is why on the cross, right? And on the cross, Jesus says, woman, behold thy son. Woman, there's that word again. Yeah. Son, behold your mother. And that's the beloved disciple who is symbolic in John's gospel. If you want to be a beloved disciple, you'd be like John. You'd take Mary as your mother. And we talked about last time, Revelation 12, right? There was a woman clothed with the sun and with a crown of stars on her head. And it's this woman in the quote Psalm 2 verse 9 and evoking that her child is the Messiah. So this woman is Mary. So Mary's the new Eve is my point. And here's what St. Irenaeus says. And this is where, if you want to understand Mary, if you're coming from a non-Catholic place, right? Jesus is the only savior. Of course, he's the only savior. There is not a equality between Jesus and Mary. No way. That's just the Catholic church has never taught that. In fact, Jesus is Mary's savior, but Mary plays a, a important role and God's God's grace in her life plays an important role. And so the early church fathers say, you know, who is Eve tempted by? I mean, obviously Satan, obviously Satan. what kind of being is Satan? Like physically? Yeah, I mean, well, what, what type of creature is he? God, snake? He's a snake in the garden, but, in, but that's kind of an image of his identity. Who is he? But what kind of being is Satan, really? When God created Satan, what kind of being is he? Like, an, what do you mean, like the angel? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So Satan's an angel. And so an angel, so what the church fathers say, is an angel speaks to Eve, and she is deceived and she disobeys. Oh uh, gosh, I see where you're going with this. Right? Isn't this cool? Yeah. And then okay. St. Irenaeus, very early on in the early church fathers see this. In Luke chapter one, angel speaks an to angel speaks to Mary. Oh dang. And Eve is called mother of the living. St. Irenaeus will tell us Mary is the mother of those who are truly alive. And there is a phrase that he kind of uh, coins where he says, death through Eve, life through Mary. And think about this. So Eve disobeys and has the opposite of faith. Yeah. And if you're a Protestant, right, you're all about faith. Eve did not trust God, right? She doesn't trust God. Satan tempts her and says, you know, did, did God say you can't eat of the fruit of any of the trees? And Eve starts to doubt God's goodness. Right. Then that God is holding something back from her. Mary has complete faith her fiat, her yes, let it be done unto me according to your word. Mary, and so, so St. Irenaeus says that Mary's, or, um, Eve's disobedience tied a knot, is what he says, and that the Virgin Mary's faith undid the knot that, that Eve had tied. And so there's an ancient, there's a prayer card that Catholics have out there, there's an image, it's called Mary the Untire of Knots. Oh, interesting. Isn't that beautiful? I, wow. I love that. Oh, that's deep. Okay. Here's a question on when you're looking at the Genesis and John seven day scenario. Yep. Is there anything um, that it's also the fact that on the seventh day, so there's woman and Mary, mm-hmm. right? Which is obviously the pinnacle, but is there also anything about the fact that that lands on the union of man and wife? 
like yeah. at a wedding. I think so. So the, so Genesis, right. The, the whole Genesis story, uh, it builds to a wedding that the high point of the point in, in some theologians say, you know, the, the point of creation in a lot of ways is a marriage. And so, so Genesis, you know, the, the creation story culminates in a marriage. John chapter one ends and you get in chapter two and it's a wedding feast and, yeah. that, and that's not an accident. Right. And, the, the, and then the same thing at the end of John's gospel. So Jesus is crucified on a Friday, which is the sixth day. And by the way, Pilate in John's gospel, he brings Jesus out and he says, behold the man which is evocative again of Genesis when God creates Adam. This is the true man. And this is why Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter five and first Corinthians 15 is that Jesus is the new Adam. The old, there was an old way to be human, which was to distrust God. It was to fall away from him. And it was to kind of go and do our own thing. Jesus is the founder of the new human race and his mother becomes the mother of all Christians. And they, they are the founders of a new human race Right caveats, Jesus not equal to Mary. He's far, he's God, she's not. But she did cooperate. And there's a reason Mary is at the cross at that critical moment. And on Good Friday, the sixth day, one way to read what, when Jesus dies, he says, it is finished. Yeah. And one, and some people, what they say is they say, well, what's finished? The work of redemption isn't finished until the resurrection. Some people think that the last supper is finished. And I'm, there's something really cool about that, but that's another <laughs> Scott Hahn thing. Scott Hahn, yeah. fourth cup kind of thing. Another way to read this is that God finishes his creation on the sixth day and he rests. And so a lot of the church fathers, again, what they say is they say, uh, God finished his work and he rested on the sixth day. Jesus finished his work on the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, the Sabbath, God rests in, cre- in Genesis story. In John's gospel, same thing happens. Jesus rests on the Sabbath in the tomb. And then Sunday, the new creation. Augustine says that um, Sunday is the first day in Genesis. And so Augustine says when God said, let there be light, that that was actually a prophecy of the resurrection. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Love that. Okay, I have to go back one more that I'm thinking about. Um, I feel like a lot of people look at when Jesus is on the cross yeah. um, and the good thief, yep. he says, you'll, you know, you'll Today jump you'll in paradise. In paradise yeah. People look at that as a, a source of um, kind of hope in their own life. Like, yep. you know, you can be forgiven yep. type thing. Agreed. But how does that, I think you just kind of like blew my mind thinking about that of like today you'll be with me in heaven. And when I read that, I look at it as like, oh, he's, you know, okay, you've been forgiven. Like we're on the cross. There's hope kind of like getting last rites, you yeah. know, a last confession before you die and that type of thing. But yeah, he, it's, we're still a ways away before Jesus goes to heaven. So is there still kind of like a, a understanding where paradise is on, on the sixth day? But is it still kind of up in the air of like, we don't necessarily know that he has been forgiven and goes to heaven. I mean, I think you can have, I don't think those things are exclusive. I think okay. both of those things are there. Yeah. And I think it should give us hope that for any of us. And again, this isn't meant to be a like, go live your life and sow your wild oats. Totally, totally. And then at the last minute, slide into just, home, you know? Just like, yeah. Just hope you're around a priest and you'll be good. Yeah. I, I had a guy, I had a Bible study I used to lead. And there was this guy. God bless him. Ben Barron. He's a good guy. He, 
he asked me at one point for a list of all mortal sins. And I was like, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. I'm like, the better way to live your life is just sin is bad and do your best to love God. Don't like carry a thing in your pocket and be like, wait, is stealing a car a mortal sin? And you pull totally. Your list, you know? that, like, I, we joked about that. That was me. Yeah. I, like I printed out the, uh, there's a, yeah, like you could just type in on Google and find the list. But as soon as I was confirmed, I literally had that piece of paper and I'd be like, oh man, here we go. I got to go in. And that's, it was like a slippery slope of trying to like live within that boundary of the paper. Yeah. Totally. Let me ask you this. We're, we're getting close to end time here, but so you being a convert, like what's, what's your, you, and you pray the rosary with the Dominican sisters in the car. A lot. I do. Tell me about that. Like what's your experience been of praying the rosary? I think you had an easier time because, and you said that because of your mom. Yeah. But how has it been praying the rosary as a kind of new Catholic still? Rosary for me, candidly, um, <laughs> I still, uh, I have my favorite days. I'm more of an optimist and like, so you like the glorious mysteries. Yeah. Like if I'm like, if I like, I'm like, oh man, I want to have a good day today. And all of a sudden it's like the sorrowful mysteries. And I'm like, gosh, I don't want to think about that today. Yeah, it's totally. like, it just has to be a Tuesday, like whatever day it is. Um, I'm the opposite by the way. I, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> No, I want like, I want the absolute glory story. So I get out of the car and I'm like, yes, bring it. Um, And I still very much find it to me. It's not easy. Like I still have my pamphlet and even in the car, like I'll still like follow along with that. So I can like, they kick me off. Luckily, this is my journey. Uh, Like even today in this time of my walk with Christ. Um, I will open up in my car, the pamphlet that I have, the rosary booklet, and then figure out like, okay, it's Tuesday. That's sorrowful, whatever it is. And then from there I go into Spotify, I load the Dominican sisters based on that. Like, I still don't know. It's still very much a Rubik's cube. It's not like the most like, Oh yeah, it's Wednesday. And I know all five and and this and that, but I need that guide. And every time I do it, again, it's still very much like if Steph's like, we'll do a prayer at night. And then she'd be like, let's just say a decade of the rosary. I'm like, mm-hmm. come on, like <laughs> a decade, really? <laughs> or like she wants to do more, do a whole rosary. It's like the end of the world. But every time when I get done, I'm like, I'm so grateful I did it. Yeah. And it really is buying into it. I find it absolutely amazing. But it definitely is a, uh, it's a, it's a work in progress and trying to get, yeah. Get that memorized. I find Mary, I think in my life, and we did a lot today on just kind of theology and scripture, but I do think, I think if you're out there and you're trying to be like, what is the role of Mary in my life? There is something about her, the way that her feminine soul was able to surrender to God. Yeah. Where I'm, I'm a head guy. You know, I, I tend to live in my head and there's just something about, Mary. Yeah. Didn't mean to say that. Yeah. There's something it's about Mary. true though. Right. But there is, there's something about Mary that helps me to let go and to just surrender my heart to Christ. And I oftentimes, one thing I would recommend to people, sometimes what I'll do, it's like, well, what does that mean practically? Sometimes in my holy hour, I will invite and I'll just say, Mary, will you be with me and pray with me? And sometimes I just imagine that I'm on my little prayer bench praying and then Mary's just kneeling next to me. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just mm. praying with me and that both of us are gazing towards Christ. And I love that. The last words of Mary in scripture, right, are do whatever he tells you. 
which is in John two at the wedding feast of Cana. Yeah. And Mary helps me to do that. She helps me, you know, I think men in a special way, we tend to be thinkers and we tend to want to figure out all the problems and put all the pieces together. And there's something beautiful about the, the feminine heart and the Marian heart that surrenders itself. It doesn't turn off its brain. That right. would be a caricature. That's not true. It doesn't turn off its brain, but there's something mysterious where Mary is able to just surrender herself. And sometimes in my life, I just want to figure things out. And God, I want to figure this out. And I want to find the scripture passage that says this and the theologian that says this, blah, 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 blah. And what I really need is I just need to surrender. That's right. Yeah. And that's at the heart of everything it means to be a Christian. And so Mary's, Balthazar loves to talk about this, that, uh, that Mary's yes. And let me, if I, can I close this off today? Sure. My, um, Mary's yes is at the heart of everything it means. So Balthazar has an image that I think is one of my favorite things he writes, and I won't pull it out, but I, I have it pretty much memorized. So Balthazar says in, in Christian States of Life, he says that Mary's existence is her son. Her whole, her whole life, everything she has, everything she is, is her son. And he says, if you thought of Mary's life and you thought of all the miracles that happened in her life, uh, you know, getting pregnant, you know, not in the normal way. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Balthazar says the greatest miracle of all of Mary's life. I'm going to, this is going to make me cry. But he says that the, the greatest miracle is that she didn't die at the cross. Because Jesus was so, so much her everything. Yeah. That for him to be taken from her, that he says only by a supernatural act where the Trinity holds Mary in existence is the only way she doesn't die at the cross. Wow. And that's speculation. That's poetic speculation from Balthazar. Totally. But I, th- I just Damn, think that's that powerful. More, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And that's, that's how given over she was that Jesus is her everything. And so the father removes from her, her everything, her stance, her ground, everything she is. And only by the grace of, of the father and the spirit can Mary survive Holy Saturday? Oh man, that's heavy. It's yeah. I wish there was ways to look at how she like, I always like to try to find the, like show me the practical, you know, like show me her day in and day out when Jesus is gone forever. Someone that is so devoted to their child. Yep. What was she, what was her daily life like? Was she just like, okay, I trust it. And like, doesn't think about it again. Or is she in like inner turmoil of like, when's he going to be back? What is he doing? Yeah. All that kind of stuff where it's like, yeah, if she doesn't die at the cross, but like, what, like, what was that like? I yeah. wish I could read her, you know, journal to really see what that was truly. Cause I, I you know, and I, I say that just cause my mom, a lot of ways I feel like I was my mom's everything, especially as I started getting wrapped up in like sports and all that kind of stuff. And even now with John on the way and like the more we're learning about parenting and all this stuff of like, obviously baby can't survive without mom. Right. You know, and, and we were learning stuff last night, like the baby can only see 12 inches. So when they're breastfeeding, they only really start to attach to their mom. They only have the brain capacity for mom and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, but then I also think of my mom in certain ways was also very, um, I'm like, man, she was super involved. Like, you know, like sometimes I felt like it was a detriment of how much I was wrapped up in that. And just maybe I'll look at, I wish there was a way to just truly 
dive into the day in and day out of Mary. Yeah. When you really start to appreciate her um, and how important she was. And I do think like that kind of thing, what a great thing to pray about. Yeah. And, and the Christian imagination, Rich Mullins has a great, he has a song called boy like me, man, like you, mm-hmm. where he does it with Jesus. And he's thinking about Jesus's childhood. Yeah. And he has this line, he has lots of lines in there and they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're funny and they're, they're a little bit too modern for my liking, but yeah. it's a great, idea. but he says, he's talking about Jesus. He says, um, did you wrestle with a dog and lick his nose? Did you pray or play beneath the spray of a water hose? Did you ever make angels in the winter snow? And there is this, he had, I love that image of like Jesus laying in snow, making angels. Yeah. And Rich Mullins in an interview said that he thought that was his, one of his most creative lines ever because Jesus did make the angels. Yeah. And to think of him as a little boy playing in the snow, oh, so like cool. making snow angels. Yeah. Like, That's a cool image. Um, all right, we should wrap up. Send us an email, folks. Uh, rant at lordsdenver.org. Help promote us. We want, um, we want people to encounter God in the fullness of truth in Jesus Christ and in his church that he founded. We want to help Catholics to go deeper in their faith and be more faithful. And um, we look forward to more questions from you guys. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next time. And we're off.